The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I think it needs maybe a different slider. It's on mic two. Yeah, so let's see if that's... Sometimes I sit and wait to see if I can hear myself. But I have to speak. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think it's going to be a little bit louder still. A little bit louder until I can... There, now we're getting there. I hear this vibration and then I know I'm on. It's a strange thing to get used to that. So uh, is that okay now, this volume? Great. So good morning, everyone, and welcome to IMC. And uh, the talk that I would like to give today could be titled um, To Care and Not to Care. And uh, it's a little bit inspired by a line from T.S. Eliot's poem, Ash Wednesday, which goes to teach me, teach me to care and not to care. And it maybe plays on two different subtle different meanings of the word care. Uh, The first one meaning uh, compassion more and the second one maybe meaning uh, to be caught up in or to be agitated by or preoccupation with something. Um, And uh, maybe another way of saying this uh, reversing the two meanings of care is uh, hold everything lightly but let compassion motivate you. So these two sides are practice, to treat everything lightly, but have compassion, act on compassion, uh, to care and not to care. And uh, the challenge for people who do Buddhist practice is as we discover degrees of freedom, degrees of peacefulness, ease, release from our attachments is how to live that in our lives and, uh, and how to negotiate the authority that comes along with, uh, behind being agitated. The authority, the importance of being upset, being angry, being um, dismayed, being discouraged by things that we encounter in our lives. And there's a lot of things that can happen that in the world that can be quite arousing, quite activating, to stimulate a lot of strong emotions, all kinds, overwhelm. And then how, does, how do we negotiate that with this idea of the freedom we discover or the peace we discover? Do we give precedence to one over the other? I think the, in, in Buddhist practice, the idea is to give precedence to the capacity to live with a heart that's free and not to give that up. But often we do give it up. And, uh, and then there's this kind of, because sometimes these other things are more important or seem more important or we give more value to it or authority to it. So uh, I think in the background of this talk is the idea of climate change and uh, there's people who have tremendous uh, sense of uh, strong emotions around what they're learning or reading about what's happening on this globe with climate, climate change. 
Some people feel overwhelmed, some people feel despair, some people feel angry and grief. There's a lot of different emotions that come along. And some of them might be quite appropriate. And I don't want to say that they shouldn't be there. But the authority that they're given sometimes to people uh, means that uh, we give up our connection to some inner freedom. And so how do we negotiate? How do we stay true to whatever degree of inner freedom we discover? How do we not sacrifice it in the face of all kinds of challenges that the world comes along with, not just global, global climate change? And, uh, and I think negotiating that in a wise way is part of the task of Buddhist practice. And so I wanted to give a, um, to tell you a little story that uh, a little something I learned from a friend of mine who was a hospice nurse. And she said that uh, in working with families of a dying patient, there would come a day where she would tell the family, from now on, there are no more crises. From now on, there's no more reason to call 911. Because the person's dying, and at a certain point, that's really what is happening. And uh, I imagine that was quite helpful for family members to hear, because it's kind of natural for family members to treat someone's dying with great alarm, concern. Sometimes they want to do everything they can to keep the family member alive. And, but at some point, it doesn't make sense for that. some point, it makes sense to accept this is what's happening. And sometimes it's the hospice nurse or the doctor on call that maybe lets the family know, you know, we've reached that point now. And that allows the family to hold the person's hand or to be present, offer a presence for the dying person that is very different. Everyone's kind of running around as if their head's on fire, agitated, you know, calling 911, screaming, help, um, which doesn't create a very nice atmosphere for the person's dying. Maybe there's a different way, atmosphere to create, to support this person who, that's what they're doing. So I thought that was a pretty powerful thing. The family cares, definitely cares about the dying pa- patient, but teach me to care and not to care at the same time. To, uh, to, to care about the person but not to care in such a way that we get agitated or, or caught up in it. So a kind of, certain kind of way, both caring, loving, and not being, and, and not caring that they're dying. Not caring in the sense of um, not getting agitated by that. I've known people who have um, come to their dying I've known people who've had terminal illnesses and they knew that they were kind of, kind of, that's what they had, but just they didn't accept it. They did everything they could to fight it. They did, you know, lots of medical care and doctors and all that, which seems reasonable. It seems like an important thing to do and appropriate many times. And then they come to a point where um, uh, it's clear to them that this is what's happening. They don't need a hospice nurse to tell them. They know. And I've watched remarkable transformations in people when they come to that point. They, when they kind of, they just relax and allow it. They, this is what's happening. And I've seen something very, very deep letting go that they weren't ready to do before that. 
and sometimes they really have to be up against the fact, the fact of their dying in such a clear and obvious way and they've tried what they could and they said something gets released okay this is what's happening I'm not going to fight it I'm not going to argue with it I'm not going to uh, you know and to let go deeply and to I've seen in the transformation people attain degrees of peace and well-being that uh, in healing in a sense spiritual healing perhaps or heart healing that um, they had never experienced in their life until then I've known people who were kind of chronically agitated, chronically anxious. And then they came to that moment where they accepted their dying, their anxiety went away. One person whose anxiety had was anxious for years that the person was going to die from cancer. And when they finally got cancer, uh, the person's, you know, that anxiety went away at some point. That's what's happening. And so, and then I've known people here in our Sangha who've gone to visit these people because it was kind of like darshan. It was kind of like a grace to be in their presence uh, because of this deep equanimity and peace that they had. So the challenge of Buddhist practice is to attain this kind of peace, this very deep letting go and well-being that can happen at these end stages of life for some people why wait? <laughs> Why wait? Why not now? And I think that's easier to accept the possibility, yes, now, if it's not an either or. It's not just about giving up. Because a little bit, you know, when people are finally dying, there's a kind of giving up. I give up trying to save the person and give up trying to save myself. There is a kind of giving up. But uh, uh, that's not what we're talking about in Buddhism. We're we're letting go for sure. But I hope it's not a giving up on caring about life. But it's a giving up of being attached to it. Why not give up our attachments to life while we're still alive? Some spiritual teachers will say that um, you can only live if you die. And you, in Zen monasteries in Japan, this, sometimes I've heard that uh, some teachers will yell in, while people are sitting in meditation. And I'm not going to try it here at times. <laughs> so you know, don't worry. But they'll yell in meditation and the teachers will yell and say, Die! <laughs> die! <laughs> It's clear they're not telling you to just literally die. <laughs> That's not what they're saying. Absolutely not what they're saying. They're talking metaphorically. Let the ego die. Let these attachments die. Let the attachment to life die. Then you can live. Something gets set free. The Buddha said this uh, uh, in a very powerful way in a poem in the Dhammapada. That goes something like, to paraphrase it, um, those who are aware, no, those who are unaware are, um, are on the path of death. Those who are aware are on the path of life. Those who are unaware are as if already dead. Those who are aware are, I forget exactly, but 
in a good place. <laughs> and um, so, you know, this idea of, you know, this possibility, you know, some people live as if they're dead. Something is dead when we live with our attachments and get caught. And we, life gets born, certain kind of life gets born when we can let go. So why do we f- insist and feel so important to stay attached, to stay clinging? That are behind many people's relationships with their grief, their sadness, their anger, their despair, their discouragement. I'm not saying that grief or sadness or despair or discouragement necessarily always involve attachment. They might arise, but many of us will then get attached to them. We'll relate to it as importance, give it value, identify with it, hold on to it, uh, take it personally in some very deep way. And so it becomes a big deal. What is it to not take things so personally? What is it to not get attached, to allow things to move through us? One of the things that it involves, I believe, is it also allows some of the best qualities we have to move through us freely. And that's one of those is compassion. Teach me to care and not to care. You know, if I was going to summarize what motivates me to be a Buddhist teacher, in some ways it's those two words, those, that little expression. Or to say it in the other way I said it before, is to hold everything lightly, but let compassion animate you. Or let compassion motivate you to act. To have those two together, it's really kind of what I want to do as a Buddhist teacher. I really want people to know what it is to be free and I want people to act in the world for the betterment of everybody, to act with compassion and care and be sensitive to the suffering of this world and live in such a way to ameliorate that. But to do that, to act that way, because it's almost like a natural expression of who we are. It's almost like a movement that comes through us. It's not a burden, it's not an obligation. It's not a uh, something heavy, but it is something that fully animates us, fully kind of flows through us. And uh, some people feel like it's not okay to do that because we only sh- only show that we care if we're agitated. We only people only sh- only show that we care if we're anxious or worried about people. We only show that we care if we're upset, if we kind of get, you know, all rallied rallied up around something. Some families, that's the vehicle by which love is shown or mutuality is shown. Uh, Some communities, that seems to be, it's, you know, it's kind of like, and it's also kind of easier to show that you care if you get all upset. (laughs) You know, then it's obviously you've been touched. But, you know, to see suffering in the world and not be upset. It's not, sometimes it's not so obvious to people that you care, unless you act in good ways to try to do something. And so we, but we want people to know that we care. So let's get upset together. 
So a I mean, little bit, you know, it's not, it's not always the case what I'm describing here. I've uh, met with people and, you know, met, encountered, encountered suffering in the world, whether individually met people and groups and sometimes even reading the news that goes on in the world and started to cry. And, but that crying seems to come out of this freedom. I didn't get angry, I didn't get discouraged, I didn't feel despair. Someone who saw me cry might have said, you know, gotten agitated, go kill, what can I do for you? <laughs> Nothing was needed for me. It's just, this is what happens. This is like a beautiful thing in a kind of way that we have this capacity. So, in Buddhism, in our tradition, uh, there is um, a, a suggestion of a daily reflection, a daily thing that people think about. It's called five reflections. And um, one of them is, um, so I'll try to go through them, but some of you know it better than me, because sitting up here, sometimes sitting up here in front of everyone giving a talk, I'm actually not as, you know, not everything in my mind is as accessible as I wish. <laughs> it's a little bit, you know, odd thing to be, you know, this kind of way, right? So you'll forgive me if I... So, um, um, so uh, everything has a nature to get old. I have the nature to get old. Everything has a nature of becoming sick. I have the nature of becoming sick. Everything has a nature of dying. I have the nature of dying. Um, we are the heirs to our own karma, to our own actions. And then there's a four, fifth one. What's the fifth one that I left out? Separated. Everything I care for and everyone I love must be separated from me. There's no way to escape that separation. Everything I care and love will be separated from me. There's no way of avoiding that separation. So, you know, that you will get old, hopefully, that, <laughs> that you will uh, get sick, that you will die, that you'll be separated from everything that you care for and love. Either that they'll go, this, those things will go, those people will go before you, or you will. Uh, and that uh, how you live, the actions you live by, uh, don't just end when the actions are done but they create certain kind of karmic momentum in your hearts and minds that uh, you'll reap somehow the results of that, the consequences of that. So to, to reflect on that every day, every day, uh, can function kind of like, why wait until you die, until you're dying, to really let go? What is it that you can really let go of now? What is it that interferes with your freedom, with your good heart? What interferes with your capacity for some very deep sense of well-being that can be here? So that when you close your eyes to meditate and you're with yourself inside, kind of, that it can kind of feel like you've come home to your temple, to your kind of sacred place. Like here, eyes closed, sensing and feeling this living life here is actually a place that's as comforting as, you know, coming home or to your temple or sacred spot or 
something over and over again. So, um, climate change. I feel a little bit sometimes um, worried by the tremendous emphasis that we have right now on global warming and climate change in some circles that it seems like it's become, it's, you know, it certainly seems like it's one of the defining issues of our times. So it certainly seems very important to address. But uh, the reason I feel a little bit tender, like it's maybe overemphasized, is that um, independent of climate change and global warming, we human beings are doing so much destruction of the natural world that all those other things we're doing to the environment are reason enough to be motivated to change how we live and not to cause so much damage. And, um, and by, by kind of making it, focusing over and over again nowadays on climate change, it becomes a, a singular issue. And many of us, many people, the public discourse is kind of losing touch that there's so much other forms of environmental destruction going on. I was kind of amazed by the the news this week. You know, earlier this last year, there was news about these microplastic particles. They're ending up in the ocean, and the bay the bay is full of uh, you know micro nanoparticles of plastic. Now there's uh, plastic fibers that are raining down from the sky. <laughs> like you know, these little fibers, you know, that are so light, I guess the wind blows them and. We breathe it, we drink it, and plastic, right? And uh, all these sea creatures that are, you know, imbibing or taking in, you know, plastic. What are we doing with our plastic, independent of climate change? And, um, but one of the issues around climate change is the degree to which people feel, some people feel overwhelming grief, overwhelming anger and despair and discouragement. Some people feel like, you know, they're almost ready to give up. It's hopeless. You know, we've we've passed a point of no return and it's just going to be just horrible from now on. Maybe it will be. So here, I'm going to read you a part of a story from the time of the Buddha. There's a king, Pisanadi, who comes to visit the Buddha. And the Buddha... Uh, says to the king, where are you coming from, great king, in the middle of the day? Where are you coming from? What have you been up to? And the king says this amazing statement. Just now, venerable sir, I have been engaged in those affairs of kingship typical of an anointed king. So what are, the, what are typical behaviors of anointed kings? <laughs> Some of you already know, apparently. Um, so, I've been engaged in those affairs of kingship typical of anointed kings who are intoxicated with intoxication of sovereignty, who are obsessed by greed for sensual pleasures, who have attained stable control of the country, in who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. 
Is this what political leaders confess to? I'm intoxicated with the the intoxication of power and I'm obsessed by greed. (laughs) Vote for me. (laughs) So anyway, you know, it seems like a very honest statement, you know. So maybe he's, maybe he's able to hold his greed lightly. He can confess it in front of the Buddha. Anyway, it's quite, quite a statement. And um, so this is the Buddha's response, I'll paraphrase. The Buddha then replies and says, Great king, what do you think? One of your messengers comes back from the east and reports the eastern mountains are rolling towards you. Nothing's going to stop them. And then a messenger comes from the south and says, Great king, the mountains of the south are rolling towards you. Nothing's going to stop them. The the messengers from the west, Great king, the western mountains are rolling towards you. Nothing's going to stop them. And what's left? The messenger from the north the mountains of the north are rolling towards you. Nothing's going to stop them. All the mountains are coming towards you. Nothing's going to stop them. So that's the scenario the Buddha sets up. And he asks, then he asks the king, um, uh, do whatever you think should be done, great king, Oh, the messengers say that. Each messenger says at the end of it, the mountains are coming, they're rolling towards you, they're, roll, they're destroying everything in its path. And then the messengers say, politely, because it's the king, do what you think is suitable. Do what you think should be done, great king. And so, um, uh, then Buddha says, if, great king, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so difficult to obtain, what should be done? So what should be done? So the end of our globe is coming. If not through global warming, it's going to come. I don't know what the prediction is. When I think the prediction is when finally the sun exhausts itself, uh, all life on earth will disappear. Which, oh, it's just a few billion years. And uh, sooner or later it'll happen. So what should be done? And um, so the king answers, if such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so difficult to obtain, what else should be done but to live by the Dhamma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds, to do good things to live by the Dharma. So, if someone is, maybe some of you, I'm pretty confident, at least some some of you that I know well, who've practiced for a long time, if it came time for you to die, or even if you had a terminal diagnosis, you would say, this is really when my Dharma practice is useful. This is what I'm going to rely on the most. This becomes the most important. 
And even on the last day, on your deathbed, if you were so lucky to die, you know, conscious that way, that you would call upon your Dharma practice the best you could. You would practice mindfulness, you'd practice letting go, you'd practice not giving in to the authority of greed, hate, and delusion. You would see the tremendous value of even in that time to not be, to work with your fear if fear comes up, to work with your attachments if attachments come up, but to keep practicing and practicing and opening up and letting go. And, you know, I'm, one of the consequences to me for doing this practice is I am quite confident for myself that if I'm conscious enough as I die, it's one of the very best things and actually kind of a really wonderful thing to do is to allow that continual letting go deeper and deeper in the process of dying. I think it dying then, I, I kind of a certain way look forward to the process of dying because if I can stay conscious enough, I imagine that uh, it's, a, it's be uh, yeah, the same process of going into the deep, uh, let it, deep meditation practice, which is some of the best things that I know to experience that freedom, that letting go. So to rely on your Dharma practice during that time is being really the thing to do. The Buddha goes on in his, his story and then tells the king, um, the, um, so he talks about these mountains that are coming and the king says, you know, I should practice the Dharma. And then the Buddha goes on. It's, it's kind of prophetic, this little story. I inform you, great king, I announce to you, great king, aging and death are rolling in on you. When aging and death are rolling in on you, what should be done? Uh, and then the, the king answers appropriately. As aging and death are rolling in on me, Venerable Sir, what else should be done but to live by the Dhamma, to live righteously, and do whatever wholesome and meritorious deeds? So, the story about, so we, there are mountains coming to you. You probably had, some of you maybe don't remember, remember right? You know, that you gotten, haven't gotten the message. But there, these mountains are rolling in on you from all directions. You're not going to get away from them. Aging and death, they're coming. Some people live as if it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen. But sooner or later, people get the, some, most people get the message. And I could see even myself, I've known this for a long time. I've been in Buddhism, which emphasizes this and all that. And uh, now that I'm 65, now that I'm in my 60s, uh, I could feel, I could sense inside, there's a ch- it's a ch- the, the, the thinking changes a little bit. There's a change and there's kind of different orientation. And like one of the thoughts is, you know, that I have is, you know, that comes up now sometimes, like maybe this will be the last time I do such a thing, this particular thing. Maybe I won't do this again. Or, you know, I don't think, you know, there's certain certain endeavors that I don't, I don't think, like I used to like learning languages when I was younger. And I thought, you know, I, you know, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to have much use for it. You know, once I learn it. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I could see, you know, these kinds of different new thoughts are happening, right? So even though I've 
the idea of death has been, you know, a common theme for my life. It's still, it's having a new, new life, new meaning as, as I get older. So, to practice, but why wait? Do the work now. A powerful teaching that I learned from the teacher Suzuki Roshi is, um, you bet, kind of like, to paraphrase him, you should start your practice now when you can. Because when you come into a, a, a crisis in your life and you try to start practicing then, you won't have prepared yourself to practice. You won't be ready. You won't have the skills and the mindsets and the strength, inner strength to meet it. So, you know, don't just wait until you're in your deathbed. Find, oh, you know, I think, you know, Gil said it was good to practice. Now I'll, now I'll start. What did he say, you know? In breath, out breath? Was it but breathing? What was it he said? <laughs> and, um, and what is letting go? You know, what, what is attachment? I know some people who come new to the practice and they don't have a clue what letting go means. It's just like so foreign idea. And um, I've known people also who when they first hear teachings, they're brand new to meditation, and they hear the teachings about being mindful of thinking, they're completely, it's a completely foreign idea. They have no idea what's being talked about. You know, pay attention to thoughts, look at thoughts, do I think? <laughs> so, Prepare yourself, you know, really prepare yourself. But if you prepare yourself now and learn how to care and not to care, learn to let go, learn to practice well, and learn in the process of that, I think you definitely will, your capacity to have compassion and care, to have goodness. Because one of the things we let go of, you'll naturally let go of as your practice, is you let go of all the obstacles for your capacity to care, to have compassion and love and kindness. The obstacles are hate, the topic of last week. The obstacles are greed, intoxication with power, intoxication of all kinds. We have a capacity for care and compassion. Fear is an obstacle. But to look at the issues of our society, the defining issues of our times, hate, racism, how we treat the other, immigrants coming to this country, for example, how we treat people who are on the other side of some political divide that we have, the issues of uh, economic oppression that America is a big part of, causing the United States. The issues of the environment, climate change. What are the obstacles that in you from really being part of the movement to make a change for the better, to address these for the betterment of all? Is there fear? Is there greed? Is there hatred? Is there annoyance that you have to be bothered by these things? Is there, what is what stands in the way? And to, to use the Dharma practice to look at our attachments naturally means, of course you'd look at all these obstacles, what goes on in you. Of course you would want to discover how to be free in relationship to them. 
And are you being limited by your overwhelm? If you are, from Buddhist analysis, you're overwhelmed with some of these issues has its genesis in some form of attachment that you have. Some way in which you're relating to it, taking it too personally, attached to self in some way. Attached to something. I think that there is no overwhelm if you've really done, cleaned yourself on the inside, really emptied yourself of attachment. There's no reason for it. The mountains are coming anyway. If you're overwhelmed by the mountains, you won't practice. Who knows what the world will need of us as the world changes even further. Right now, I think it needs uh, everyone to participate in all kinds of ways to make this a better world. It needs all of us to learn how to consume less, consume more wisely so we don't contribute to the environmental destructions. We need to be involved in the political actions that reduces somehow the environmental destruction that goes on in this planet. We need to address this issue of racism in our society. We have to address the issues of, of uh, hatred in our society that's so divisive. We have to go all these issues. And how we each of us address it, I don't know. There's so many different ways of doing it as individuals. But somehow, in our way, the way that works for us it makes a difference. To teach me to care and not to care. Live lightly, hold everything lightly, but let compassion animate you, let compassion flow through you, let compassion be the source of your actions in the world. As we face climate change, Even that, even that, don't give up your freedom. Don't give up the practice. Don't give up the heart's capacity for being at peace. But don't do that and do nothing else. If you do, that itself is probably a form of attachment. That itself is probably a kind of violence we do to ourselves. I don't think that if we really want to care for ourselves and really honor the peace and the movement of freedom and non-attachment, we would give voice or give freedom to the impulses to care, to have compassion, to make a difference. That lives in us as well. But we would not be oppressed by those impulses we would not be overwhelmed. We would not feel like we're not doing enough. Or we would, because we'll never do enough. <laughs> but we'll hold that lightly. So as a, at least for me, my understanding of where I've come to through this practice of Buddhism, and a very simple summary of it is to care and not to care. Hold everything lightly, but let compassion animate you, engage you. So I hope that this talk has uh, challenged you to really look at yourself and reflect 
how these ideas I'm talking about exist in you. How are you with these issues of our society and our world? How are you with your the authority you give, your, your emotions and your attachments? How do these live together? And is there some powerful way that you can give authority, value, importance to non-clinging so that you are not overwhelmed, but you do act. That's the challenge that I hope this talk has given you. And uh, I hope, I very much hope that since it's such an important motivation for me to be a teacher, this, those of you who've been listening to me for a while and coming, I probably have permission to ask you, please think about this. Talk to your friends about this and explore this and consider this and really kind of do some deep, I guess in Buddhism we would say, heart searching, soul searching around these topics and issues. And I think the world needs it. And I would suggest that we need it, all of us. So, thank you. <laughs>